0: I think I have a lot of hope. I like to, like, sometimes I'm a pessimist, sometimes I'm an optimist. I'm like a little bit in the middle, but I think the optimist in me was like, if you quit today, what if tomorrow is gonna be your day? And that kind of like, kind of pushed me through.
1: I'm Layla Saad and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing change makers and culture shapers who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Good Ancestor Podcast. I'm your host, Leila Saad. Today, I'm here with someone I've been wanting to talk to for a really long time, Leah Vernon. She is queen of looks just slays the hijab, slays fashion, makeup, but also has the most profound and inspiring writing. And so I'm really excited to have her here today. Let me tell you a little bit about Leah. Leah is an international hijabi social media influencer and award-winning author of the new memoir, Unashamed, Musings of a Fat Black Muslim. She's a motivational speaker, an educator, and a content creator. Her content has garnered over a million views combined, and she's been featured in hundreds of media platforms from the New York Times to BuzzFeed. This Detroit native was inspired to start blogging in 2013 because there wasn't enough inclusion in the media. Her goals are to continue to spread style and self-love to underrepresented groups and to spark a fashion revolution. And she's already doing just that. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast, Leah. That intro was, like, amazing. Uh. (laughs) You are amazing, and I just can't wait for this conversation. So, first question. Who are some of the ancestors, alive or transitioned, societal or familial, who have influenced you on your journey?
0: Wow, we're getting right into it. We're getting right into it. Honestly, I would say, like, right now is, and it will probably forever always be, like, Maya Angelou. Like when she passed away, like I was very hurt, like personally, I'm just like, I never got to meet her. And I was like in the car crying. So I'm just like, we just lost a whole universe to me that we will probably never get back. And so I feel like I had a connection with her because her journey was, was like a lot of our journeys and a lot of our mothers and grandmothers journeys. And she just transcended that into this the way she danced and the way she moved, the way she spoke, she can, like, cry a tear. and It'll be inspiring to me. Uh, It will move me. And a lot of people don't have that where they can just be. And it makes this huge impact. Like, her living in her truth is something that I aspire to be all the time. And then someone who's alive, you said, like, ancestor. Yeah. I would say, of course, my girl Oprah. When I was growing up, uh, and this is really sad to say, I didn't see my family as um, role models, like my grandmother, my own mother, my aunts, they were never role models to me. I will probably get into that later, (laughs) but I was always searching for someone that I connected with, someone that I thought was like me and that I could aspire to be like, and Oprah was that for me. During the time, there were no fat black people in the media. I think she was like the only one. And the way she handled it, even though she's had her up and downs, I know everyone doesn't agree with her. Like overall, she's a pioneer and she is everything to me. It has been that since I was like nine, 10 years old. And so, yeah, like I think those two people, those are my girls.
1: And I love it because they are each other's girls, right? So yeah. Oprah, um, Maya Angelou was such a mentor and a mother, sister, everything to Oprah. So that's beautiful. Maya Angelou is someone who's very special to me too, my daughter is named after her. And she is, like you said, just through her beingness. I mean, you can still watch some of her poetry recitals and you just get chills in the way that she held herself and the way that she was unapologetic in this really unassuming way. There was nothing forceful
0: about her, but it was powerful. It was humble. It wasn't like, like you know, now with social media, it's like very like, oh yeah, I have ten thousand followers. You don't have to say that. You don't have to name drop. Just walk into a room and be right. and then be powerful in that. And yeah. I feel like that's something we're we're lacking, and something that I strive to but,
1: yeah. Online. I was gonna say I feel like it's something that you do very well, and I know that you are you're someone who talks with great transparency and you don't sugarcoat things right about your experiences about being a fat black muslim woman in the world and also in an industry in which many of those identities are not just not the norm but seen as something to avoid right just before we came to this interview i was thinking about you as i was getting ready and i was thinking about myself growing up and i i grew up in the uk and I was thinking about a lot of the magazines that I used to love to buy, you know, teenage girl magazines. And there was never anybody who looked like you on those magazines, but there wasn't even anyone who was black and thin and not Muslim, right? It was just white, white, white. And we didn't have things like Essence Magazine or any other kind of black representation. And so... I often think about the difference between myself growing up and the experience my daughter has growing up. She's growing up in the age of the internet. So even though you're on the other side of the world, she will have access to people who look like you and how that just is so important. How you show up is seen as revolutionary by so many people, but it's also just you showing up as yourself. Yeah. Right? I know you've had a lot of comments of people say, where do you get the confidence? (laughs) you're like and scratch
0: (laughs) (laughs) would you ask ask a thin person that like I don't hear interviewers asking like thin or straight-sized people like as a thin person where'd you get your confidence like I've never heard them say that they say it to fat women dark-skinned women people who are not necessarily considered societally beautiful or wanted or like put on the beauty standard pedestal and it's just like these microaggressions it seems like very small and insignificant right but when you have a lot of interviews and people continue asking you that you have to get them because it's like this is not an appropriate question in the context If it was like another like plus size woman asking me or another like marginalized body asking in a way that's conversational and not like loaded, that's fine. When you have like a straight size white woman asking you that, you're like, honey, would you ask that to a straight size or person or a white woman? Like, would you ask them that? And like, I have to always put that because some people like think that I am basically rattling the cage that everything's diverse now, everything's inclusive. So why do I have to continue, you know, beating the dead horse? But it's just like, no, like you guys have no clue the behind the scenes of being in an industry, like you said, that is so against these looks. I always tell people I'm shocked when a company hires me to model. Like I'm legit shocked, not because like I'm not a confident person or I don't think that I'm able to produce the same quality campaign that someone who's taller or thinner or non-Muslim could do. It's just the fact that it's so rare. And so when I get calls as a person who doesn't have a modeling agent, and I'm standing with people who have a million followers, a quarter million followers, who are tall and curvy in the right places, who are usually biracial, and you have me who's 5'4", you know, not the right fat, right? Way bigger than all the models. Can't walk in heels. From Detroit. Loud as fuck. And I'm standing and modeling like, amongst them. That's so shocking to me. Like, I would never get over that mm. because it's so rare. It's amazing. Like, I've never, ever thought, like, I never set out to do this. Tell, yeah, tell, tell us a but, little like, bit about how you did begin doing this. So you
1: you said you saw that there was not enough representation.
0: Right. Yeah. So just to take it back a little bit. So when I was growing up, I had body dysmorphia. I probably still have it. But of course, like growing up in a black Muslim community, words like these are not like widely used, right? Things like mental illness and depression, anxiety, like you don't use those words. Like, oh, you know, you're a little sad. Go pray about it. So you got that. And so as a black girl growing up in a very, like, there's two sides. Like you had your disadvantaged black community and then you also had like the Muslims who are like Middle Eastern Daisy. So I was split between those two. And then the third would be white society. Mm. So you have a fat black girl in the middle of all these identities that, that she doesn't fit in, right? right. So with the dysmorphia, I absolutely hated the way I looked. Absolutely hated anything, like, ethnic, whether it was my hair texture, skin color, the way I spoke, where I live. My plan was to live life as a white woman. And I'm not even kidding. Like, it's kind of, it's funny now that, like, this is a lot of well, problems that we, we go through. Right. And I think that so many
1: of us, whether we were able to articulate it or not, when we look back now, we're like, that's actually what I was trying to be.
0: Yeah. And I was like, I'm denouncing everything that I thought was ghetto or ethnic or culturally Muslim. I don't want that. As soon as I get out of this house, I'm going to live my best life as a white woman. And that was my fucking goal, which is disgusting at this point because I definitely am a proud Black woman. but <laughs> You're one of the proudest black, black women I know, so that's exactly. what makes me I'm just, like, oh very, God. very Black. Like, Black <laughs> fuck. And so, like, having all those issues, people always tell me, like, oh, my God, like, Leah, you're so photogenic. And I would literally be so mad when they would say that. Because I was like, I don't look like anybody in these magazines. I don't look, look like anyone on the catwalk. How dare you lie to my face and tell me that I'm photogenic? And it was that bad. Where I would just be like, Like, I will be angry that they would even say that to me because I wasn't. It wasn't true. That's what body dysmorphia does. It makes you think that you are not worthy because you set these standards of what you think beauty is. Everyone thinks beauty is. And so for many years, I avoided mirrors. I was angry. I didn't want blackness. I didn't want anything. And then I went to a fashion show. I was still going through my eating disorder time, but I went to this fashion show and people kept coming up to me and asking me, like, are you a model? Are you a designer? Like, who are you? And I'm like, I'm basically a normal person who just dresses well. <laughs> and that kind of, like, gave me an idea. I am like, forever and ever, like, even through my insecurities, I've had people come up to me and tell me that I'm photogenic or that I'm charismatic and that I should be in front of the camera. And I was like, what if maybe I just try writing and blogging? And so I started as a writer first. Mm. And the writing, no one wants to read it. And I am just like, okay, so what if I post pictures with my accompanying the writing. And then for a long time, people were like only looking at me as the beauty and not a writer. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I'm a fucking writer too. Like I write things. Like don't just say like, oh, so cute, pretty. Oh my God, it's all these things. No, 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 I'm an actual writer. So please respect that as well. So now I'm at a point where people respect both the beauty side and also that I'm an actual like two master's degrees having individual who writes very well. Yeah. But the journey from me starting to where I am now, it's been a lot. Like with dealing with body dysmorphia, I went through a divorce during that time, which was very, very messy and shady. Weight gain, weight loss in unhealthy ways. So for me blogging in 2013 to now, a lot of shit has definitely changed.
1: Mm. Thank you for sharing that. Two things came up for me as you were talking. First of all was... I thought of Maya Angelou again and about how she was equally many different things at the same time and wasn't like, no, I'm only this. I'm only a poet. I'm only this. It's like, I see so much of that in what you're saying, because we were just saying before we hit record on this conversation that when I see your pictures, like I love fashion and colors, right? So when I see your pictures, I'm like, ah, oh, so many good ideas and so good and so pretty. And I just want to click yes, queen and everything. And then I begin reading the post and I'm like, oh, hold up a minute. Leah's making me think again. And I feel like I read the post and I'm like, I like the image, but the writing even more just like got me so in my heart and makes me think. And I love that you represent both at the same time, that you can be both at the same time because so often we get pigeonholed as well, right? If you're the beauty, the talent, the model, then just be that. You don't have to go on a you know, a rant about the fact that you're struggling with mental health or issues of racism or issues of fat phobia. But you're like, no, I insist on both. I am everything all at
0: the same time. It was actually really funny, like you just said. So there's this model that I work with and she's like very, she's surface, not gonna lie. She's surface. She's very beautiful, very successful. And I work with her on a project, seen her recently and she was just like, You are saying things that I would never say on set. Mm-hmm. And I found that so refreshing. And I'm just like, I act crazy all the times. So I don't remember. So, like, what happened? She was like, You used to say it like you just straight up was like, I'm tired. I'm sitting down. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and she was like, As a model, like, we're just like bodies. We're just like there to be beautiful. And we get up and we get the shot. She was like, I'm tired. I'm sitting down. She's like, I would have never said that that's so refreshing. Like, I didn't think to even say something like that. And I'm just like, girl, I'm 76 years old. I don't have to be, I'm going to get the shot, but I'm tired. I'm sitting down for five minutes. Give me five minutes. Yeah. Because they'll make you feel upset, like, oh, hurry, hurry, hurry. Rush, rush, rush. Like, no, I'm the talent. And so I'm going to get what I need to do what I need to do. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times we get into this, like, hustle and bustle of, like, we need to constantly be on. I need five minutes to recuperate. And so a lot of people, like you just said, like they are so surfaced that they just kind of get into this comfort zone of like, okay, Drake lyric, pretty picture, uh, booty Boy. shot, like, you <laughs> know, Drake lyric. It's like, can we mix it up a little bit? Can we put our own like personalities into what we do? It's totally fine. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say like, it's easy to like live in your truth and also try to be commercial because of course being commercial is where the money's at. So mm. I'm not going to say like, Companies that want to work with her will work with me because I'm too loud. I'm too considered woke, right? So it's just like it does hurt you in the long run, adding your personality and your values and your character into your brand. But I do think that in the long run, it'll pay off. Like I'm, I'm hoping that my community will see that that I'm not just surface, and I am telling you the real deal of these industries, and that it touches you enough to be like, if she has a shirt, I'll support it. If she has a book. I'll buy it. It's just yes. an event. I'll attend it. Like, that's the kind of people that I want. That's the yeah. kind of community that I want around me. And that is so
1: what you're cultivating and attracting. It's so clear. I mean, the comments on your social media posts are so thoughtful and people are connecting to you as a person. But you're so right that I think when we get invited into these spaces especially the people who hold marginalized identities sometimes it's just like you should just be grateful that you got in the door exactly and take up as little space as possible be as quiet as possible be as safe and unthreatening as possible and then maybe you'll get a second chance again and you're just defying all of that but it
0: costs you of course yeah yeah And I go through a lot of, like, financial struggles because I don't think people understand that, like you said, there's costs to everything. Once you decide to start telling the truth, and, like, I don't even, honestly, like, I don't even go hard as I could go. Like, what I go hard on, that's, like, maybe 25% of what I really want to say. Right. But anyway, there's a cost, which means that I don't get paid as much. I don't get as many gigs as the other girls do. I've had to turn down gigs that I thought didn't line up with my values. So there's times when I'm just like, I'm living off a credit card. I might be popping on the New York Times, BuzzFeed, Huffington Post, but your girl is living off a max credit card. Yeah. For most part, if I'm down, down, I'll share it. But I'm just like, okay, I might get to the next check. You're good. But one time I was like, I cannot continue to create content, remain sane, without some type of support. So y'all can donate or buy these little webinars because I can't sustain myself. I'm not getting the gigs. Um, they don't strange. want me.
1: It's easy to look at you and say, oh, she's a pioneer. She's doing this work. She inspires me. She helps me to find my own courage, but not realizing you're taking a lot of hits in order yeah. to be that. And you know you're not doing it for anyone else except yourself first, right? It's about you standing in your integrity first, but I think it's so important for people to realize the people that we hold up as our, as our inspirations, that there is a cost to that, especially when, they're in, when they hold marginalized identities and that we should be supporting them as much as possible because likes and comments don't pay the bills. Exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: people, like, a lot of people don't understand that. This one, and she was actually a close friend of mine. She's like, I told her that I had won the Gilda Award two years ago for my nonfiction writing, which was like amazing. And I think that was a catalyst for like me writing the book um, that's getting published now. But I used some of the money to take a spare flight to LA to um, do some free modeling and kind of connect with the LA crowd and see what was out there. And she's like, it must be really fun to just, like, travel and, like, take pictures. And I'm like, bitch, <laughs> are you kidding me? <laughs> right. Wow. I'm living off a Subway sandwich for the day. That's my budget for the day is a Subway sandwich. Please don't play with me. I have stories about, like, me traveling with $20 in my pocket, eating crackers and water for breakfast just to get to a fashion show in New York. Like, come on now. Don't do that to me. Like, that's stuff that I don't necessarily share now that I'm kind of like a little bit more in the game but like that's I was thugging it out for the first like three four years. And
1: during that time when you didn't have the platform that you have now and you didn't maybe have the opportunities that you're getting now what was the thing that kept you going?
0: It was a couple different things the first thing was I think I have a lot of hope I like to like sometimes I'm a pessimist sometimes I'm an optimist I'm like a little bit in the middle but I think the optimist in me was like if you quit today, what if tomorrow is going to be your day? And that kind of like kind of pushed me through. Also, when people say that I can't do something, it honestly pushes me. I just take all that negativity and I just harness it into like fire. And I'm just like, oh, so you said I? Could. Okay, great, great, great. Now I'm gonna try three times hard just to get that because I'm petty. <laughs> I'm also like, no. So like I just like I love seeing people's disappointment when I win. I love it. Like, oh, you thought I wasn't gonna win? Oh, okay. <laughs> I three times over. That makes me so happy. Also, like when I just was down, down, where I just yeah. really couldn't make it. Literally, like a God, the universe would send me some random person to tell me to keep going. And I'm not even kidding. It'd be like a random. Like I remember this one time, I was like, I'm done with blogging. I don't want to see no pictures. I don't see nothing. The next day. This blogger that I'm still still in touch with, she featured me in one of her articles and emailed her. And I'm just like, okay, I'm literally crying right now because I just said I was going to stop doing this. And you just gave me hope to keep going. And she just had this whole like spiel about like what I'm doing is revolutionary and I should keep going. And like, we didn't know each other like that. I would get like little stuff like that. People just come and be like, what do you do? You need to keep doing that. Like, I'd be like, oh God, now to keep doing this. (laughs) Because like, there's so many times that I was going to stop, like so many. It was like weekly at that point.
1: Yeah.
0: It was frustrating. It is. And I know you've written about this,
1: about how people show, you know, their highlights basically on social media and are not really showing what's going on behind the scenes, but it, it is a struggle. And when it's something that you, believe in, and you're the only one who sees the vision, right? And you're the only one who understands why you're going through everything that you're going through. It's hard, but I love that you've had those moments. I know I've had them as well, where literal strangers or people that you were not expecting to just come in and say, keep going. It's so affirming. So you are, to me at least, I do find you hopeful and an optimist, even while at the same time calling out BS but you've had it tough, right? You had a challenging upbringing and then you were in an abusive marriage and went through a divorce. And yet you are able to talk about those experiences and really you own all of them and yet you have risen from them. Right. To me anyway, that's how it seems to me that you have that you took all of those things that happened and did not let them define you, but have Taken the path of defining yourself for yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about what that journey's been like for you?
0: So when I started like Beauty and the Muse, it's funny because like I have a split personality. I have this very, very grandiose, beautiful part where it's like sleigh faces, Lady Gaga-esque outfits. Mm-hmm. And I have the muse part where I'm very thoughtful and I don't want to be bothered by humans. And I just want to write and create content in a cave somewhere and just send it out when necessary. And I have this competitive spirit and which I've had ever since I was very, very little, which I think has absolutely helped me. A lot of people, when I first started doing this, were so against it. And I remember my cousin one time, I used to write like openly. I write like little articles and enter contests. Like I was very proactive, like at a young age, you know, doing the writing thing. And I remember my cousin, I was like, yeah, I'm writing a book. And she, we were both grown at the time. And she's like, oh, everybody's writing books. And that made me so mad. Mm. I'm just like, you fucking bitch. Like, why are you, I didn't call her that. And it wasn't just her, it was like other people. I would say like, oh, I'm writing a book and I have my family members, unfortunately, black family members. They'd be like, I mean, don't you have a degree? What does that got to do with your degree? Can you make money from that? Why aren't you making any money? Mm. Like I would get that all the time. So I started doing this thing where I didn't tell anybody that I was doing anything I didn't tell them I was writing books, stories, submitting them, anything on social media, I never told people because I would always get, unfortunately for my, my Muslim community and my Black community, and including my ex, why are you doing this? Like, Muslim women don't do this. Like, you should be focusing on starting a family. You should be focusing on using your degree to actually make real money. When these people are having even tapped into their own greatness, but they're trying to tell me what I should do. And... I wish I would have had a community hmm. back in the day because I feel like, and I know what it could have should have, but I wish a lot of us, like, especially, like, people of color and marginalized individuals would have that support, like, I see other cultures having, like, the support of, okay, we're going to buy this. It might be crap. We're still going to buy it. this support this person. I feel like we're very hard on each other to the point where a lot of us quit before we even get started. Hmm. And so I think that was, like, my main thing is, like, People wanted, I don't know if it was like jealousy or if it was just like actual concern for me not having anybody and still being educated, but I started to internalize it. But I always knew that I was different from the other people. And I would tell people that I would think it was arrogance. And I'm like, I'm not saying that because I'm trying to be arrogant. I honestly feel like I'm different from you. Like, you guys don't tap into what the creator has given you. And I'm trying to do that. And so, I had a very, very tough, especially in my marriage. Like that was I feel like the more I tapped into my power, the less love I got, the less attention, the less emotional support, financial support. He just did not want me to be who I am right now, which is why that had to end. But the way it happened was really fucked up. And I just now that I'm looking back on it, he wasn't comfortable with me living in my truth. Mm. He wasn't comfortable with me igniting that spark that I was born with already. He wasn't comfortable with that. A lot of my friends weren't comfortable with that. My family members. And it's just very interesting to see like how they try to dim it and how, like you said before, I overcame it. Because I could have gave in. And like, even to this day, I'm just like, why didn't you give in? Like, what made you different from them that you just was like, I don't care. I'm not stopping. Well done. First of all, is
1: what I want to say. Because to have so many people To be in an environment where people not only don't get what you're doing or why you're doing it, but are actively trying to discourage you from it is really hard. And I think some of it is family dynamics, but I think also a lot of it is the way that we internalize our own oppression and the way that we fear. So it's like, we can't do that. Black women don't do that. Black people don't do that. Muslim people don't do that. And it's like, who said?
0: Exactly. (laughs) Sounds like colonizer said it to me.
1: (laughs) But for our own sort of safety and protection, it's like stick with what's safe, stick with what we know, because if you do that, you threaten everything. And it takes a lot of courage and resilience and strength and vision and just so much to keep going when the force is just pulling you back into that, that entropy. And it's like, just stay here, it's safe. Everyone you love is right here. And so to be able to keep digging that thing from within you to keep you going is just, is really inspiring. I'm really glad that you did because I look up to you. You really inspire me. I remember I was shopping with a friend a couple of months ago and I hadn't been clothes shopping in forever. And you know, when you have children, it changes your body, and then you don't know what your body is or what fits you or who you even are. And so it was the first time that I was like, I'm going to go and get a whole new set of clothes. And I remember trying this jumpsuit on, and it was beautiful. But I remember looking at myself in the mirror and thinking, I look fat, right? And that was my fat phobia, right? That not just fat, but that fatness meant ugliness. And so I remember looking in the mirror. And then I thought of you and I was like, hold on a second. Like, I just saw a picture of Leah yesterday wearing a jumpsuit and she looked fabulous AF, right? And I did not look at that picture and think, oh no, she shouldn't be wearing that. I, it did not enter my mind. I was just like, I wish I could rock a jumpsuit with, like that. So I bought it because I was like, no, forget this. <laughs>
0: People are going to get what they get. This is my body. Right, exactly. <laughs> like, stop playing games. I, I think we all have internalized fat phobia. Even fat folks have internalized fat phobia. Right. Yeah. I hate fat woman tells another fat woman, oh, I don't think that's flattering on you. And I'm like, I will throw a glass of wine in your face. Right. Do not do that. Do not do that because you know it's hard out here. You don't need hatred from every angle. Like, we we are all we got. Even I I have times where I have internalized fat phobia as a body positive activist and a fat activist. I'm just like, whoa, see? Because it's so ingrained in us to be like, fat is ugly. Fat is not worthy. It's lazy. It couldn't possibly be beautiful. And this is ingrained in every single human being. And so it's hard to fight against it. But at least you know that you're self-aware enough to be like, wait, hold up. I yeah. know
1: a lot of well, was, that, it, Yeah. Well, for me it was actually a turning point. So from that point on, those thoughts in terms of how I look when they don't enter into my mind. I remember when shopping before it'd always be like, oh, maybe I'll buy that when I'm thinner. Yeah. Right? Maybe I'll wait until I'm thinner. And now I'm like, I really like my body. And it's not the body that 10 years ago I thought I would be able to love. And so Thank you, because <laughs> you don't know you're like a little angel in people's shoulder and changing rooms, and you don't even know it. You
0: know I, was, I was a witch, but okay, thank you.
1: I know you. You have that picture with like the sassy your, the
0: sassy angel. Well, you
1: ha, you have that picture with like your tutu, like your fairy tutu. You're like little fairy godmother yeah. on my shoulder. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't want to go lie. <laughs> That's like a thing. I think my goals for this year is to do more cosplay yeah. because like that is so amazing to show an image of fat person doing the same exact thing as the cosplay character or the celebrity. Like after my birthday I did uh, Beyonce's Formation. I remember. And it was so funny because I literally had like two dollars so I was like, where can I get, like, some? I already have a shirt. So where can I get the, the hat and the neck yeah. piece? I got it from Amazon, which, you know, Amazon's trash, but still. It was really <laughs> cheap. And I went out into, like, by the street. And I was just, like, studying Beyonce's movements and the pictures. And I just snapped it with my own, like, little stand. A picture of, like, Beyonce formation, recreation. And it, and it was, like, people really loved it. It was amazing. Like, I love, like, yeah, like, because, like, like, why can't, like, why do we all have to always be, like, second? best or we have to be the sidekick or the funny friend. We need to start working on changing the narrative so that you know your kids and other people's kids and even the grandmas can see that we've been living second best for a long time yeah. and it's time to change that. Like I have the same right as you as a human being, I have the same right. Why do I have to be put in these boxes and why do I have to live as less than you because you have thin privilege or white privilege? No, I'm not doing that anymore. That's over, that ship has sailed. Like I'm over it.
1: Yes. Tell us a little bit about your your book. And I also perhaps we can frame it in the context of so it's called Unashamed, right? And I'm really looking forward to reading it. We as black women already deal with a lot under white supremacy, but you also face a lot from the Muslim community as well. Right?
0: <laughs> Unfortunately.
1: Unfortunately right? There's sometimes the kind of messages that you get and you post them and I'm like, no, this is so.
0: I have so many. I have so The ones I post are not even what I get. Yeah. So many.
1: I can imagine. And yeah. so I talk a lot about Audrey Lord because she's a huge inspiration and a, a good ancestor for me. And she often defined herself as black woman, you know, lesbian, poet, you have defined yourself, but Black Muslim woman, unashamed. What has that journey been like of taking the actual journey that you've been through and putting it into a book?
0: So prior to me writing this book, I never wanted to write about my life ever. Mm. And as you know, I'm sure you, you write, have written nonfiction or you're a writer. Usually writers will dabble in nonfiction, even if, even if they write fiction. So growing up, books were something that I used to get away from my life. And I started this at a very young age. And so when I was little, of course, it was all white books because, you know, white authors are always, like, the thing. And so I would delve into these white narratives as a little black girl, and just get away from my father not being there. Get away from my mom's mental illness and the displacement that I felt growing up. So I was just like, I want to create stories to do the same thing for another, another little girl or boy who needs to get away. And so I wrote fiction only. I never wrote nonfiction. Fiction to me, you can hide. You can create these worlds that are very much so like a world that you want to be in. You can put pieces of yourself in different characters. And so I felt like I never had control. And so fiction was like something that, that's what I wrote. In my <laughs> master's degree program, I was accepted for a fiction program. And they told me that I had to take another class that was not fiction. And I'm like, well, I'm not here for that. I'm <laughs> here for and they're like, well, you have to take either poetry, screenplay, screenwriting, or nonfiction. So I'm like, I don't want to take any of those, but I have to pick So Which one is the most easiest? I ended up picking nonfiction. Of course, the class is all white. Teachers are white. But the teachers, although white, they're hippies. And it was a little woke. So they introduced me to all these, this Black literature. And I'm like, what? In my 20s, I have not known about Black nonfiction memoir writers. And this is some good shit. Yeah. And I was just, this is amazing. And I'm like, wow. And so they made me write about different things. And at this time, I was still married. I was still connected to my mom. And I did not want to incriminate. Because people were always saying that I was incriminating people and I always had something to say. To me, I think the least incriminating stories to share about them. At the end of the semester, we had to go meet with our teachers. And I sat across from and this is actually a, a story in my book. I sat across from my professor, and he was like very dry. Like I would make jokes, he would never laugh. Mm. And so I sat across from him. And he's like, Leah, I know you're in fiction, but I would bet my entire career that you're gonna be in nonfiction. And I was like, Wow, sir, sir, I'm not doing that. And he was like, like uh-uh, I said, it's not me. I said, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to out myself, I'm not gonna out my, my family and my people. Because I'm not doing that. Thank you, but no thank you, sir. And he's like, in the 20 years I've been in nonfiction, I've never seen anything like this before. And I'm like, well, it is what it is. I'm not doing it. And so life has a way of coming full circle. So what happened was I got two master's degrees. My mom ended up spazzing out mentally and started being really, really mean to my siblings. And then one by one, they started getting cut off. Like, either they cut her off or she would cut them off. And she was going through some mental stuff and physical stuff as well. And so, one point she bullied my little sister, and I was like, I'm done with it. Because you're, you're getting really mean. You're being someone that I don't know who you are, and you're causing me distress. Mm. So, simultaneously, I'm going through a divorce and going through a lot of emotional abuse. Then that just ends. So, now I'm living in a house no savings, no job, no nothing, no insurance, and i am angry. i'm mad as fuck. i'm like fuck everybody. i'm mad at my my dad who's not there, my mom who's not there, my husband who i thought was going to be there. i'm mad at white people and muslim people. like i'm mad at everybody. Mm. and i'm sitting at this kitchen table i just moved in. my whole body is like sore from moving. And I'm just like, I'm going to put all this anger and frustration and this hurt and trauma into essays. And I'm going to write and I'm going to write and I'm going to write and I'm going to cry and I'm going to write. So every single essay or th- portion that's in this book, I would literally have to get up and go take a nap because I was like, my face was just hurting and I was crying. And so this book honestly came out of frustration and anger and it then morphed into something a little bit more inspirational. But the first half of it is very heavy. It's very heavy. And of course, that's not even everything that happened, but it's a heavy read. But you go through this journey of what it's like to be a fat woman, what it's like to be a Black woman, a divorcee, you know, someone with mental illness in her family. You go through these events with me in this journey, and you learn a lot about yourself, and you learn a lot about about me. Wow.
1: I really can't wait to read it, Leah. You know, because... (laughs) Sweat, blood, and tears went into it. Yeah. And I i mean, you're a phenomenal writer just on Instagram. I really can't begin to imagine what this book holds in store. And isn't it so interesting, and I found this myself as well, how I know with my work, a lot of it began in anger and then became something more than anger. But it had to start there yeah. for me, at least. And I think as creatives and as artists, you know, we mine our lives and our experiences for ourselves first to go through the healing. And then it becomes something that can really serve so many people. So I can't wait for this this contribution that you've created. You know, you are going to be one of those black literary writers that people are studying in
0: college and university. In that it's funny because I like, you know, have these two personalities, right? And so the beauty me wants to be like, oh, I want to be like the uh, Black literary Cardi B. And then the other side is just like, oh my God, your whole life's going to be open for dissection. Because mm. right now I've been getting a lot, because the, the publishing industry is very elitist, as you know. Right. white. The reviews that I've gotten, the industry reviews that I've gotten have been so Caucasian. Like one girl was like, she's just so raw. She's just so raw and so gritty, so mature. This, this content is mature. I like. First of all, this is the life of a black woman. Usually, this is what we live all the time. Right. And so sometimes I get, even if it's a good review from a white woman, I'm just like, I don't want you dissecting me like I'm some damn like animal or something. So sometimes I'm just like, I don't know what you to read about shit. Like because I don't want you, you, your Caucasian eyes, to be like, oh, this is what they do. Like don't what? worry about me worry about you. (laughs) I'm trying to not get into that mindset of like, okay, I understand.
1: Morrison talked about this, right? The white gaze and writing under the white gaze. And I know I contend with it just within this podcast, right? So I interview mainly people of color, mainly black people, mainly black women and femmes, but I have a very white facing audience. And I know that it's something that I'm constantly navigating for myself is I want to have honest conversations with people like Leah and I don't want to think about who's listening to it and who's watching because I don't want to have to cater for that. And yeah. I think it's something that we're so often aware of, right? That you, as a writer, you're creating this this body of work and at the same time you have this kind of like, oh, a feeling as people are reading it because the way it's being received isn't the way that you intended it to be received.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but at the same it time, it's got to reach the masses. I'm trying to figure out, like, it's like an identity thing. It's very, like, comes from your identity. I don't think I can prepare myself for, like, what's going to happen with this book. Like, I honestly don't think I can, pre- can prepare for it. Because there are mature themes in it. I do think I'm going to get, like, attacked from certain Muslim communities. I know that for a fact. And so I need to prepare myself for to be hyper-criticized and people taking things out of context and then non-Muslims you um try that. In one sec- section right. and trying to spin it into right. something else that it was never meant to be. So I don't think that I can prepare myself for this for this book. I actually called my sister a couple of weeks ago. I'm like, throw the whole fucking book away. She was like, <laughs> girl, what? I said, throw the whole book away. I don't want it no more. Take it right. I don't want
1: it. <laughs> yeah. So you've had to deal with that being in the public eye anyway, right? I was scrolling through your feed and you had a post where You said that (laughs) you'd done a video where you'd done a Brazilian wax. Yeah. And then you'd been told that you couldn't come and speak at the mosque because you'd posted this video.
0: Right. It was not even nowhere near my vagina. Right. It was all all your face, just so people are aware. All your face. They they were mad about it. I was like, I didn't even do nothing. (laughs) 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 What did I do?
1: But you're used to, unfortunately having people from different communities project different things onto you and you know, send you different critiques and criticisms. How are you taking care of yourself knowing that? Because anyone who puts themselves out into the world, that comes regardless, right? Regardless of your identities. You create something, you share your vulnerability, you have an opinion, a voice, and then you add, start adding identities like woman, like black, like Muslim, like fat. And it's just, it gets ramped up and ramped up.
0: right? <laughs> Honestly, for me, like, so when I was in Detroit, I had like my self-care things that I would do because Detroit is very affordable. Uh, and so I would do like, okay, I'm going to get my, my toenails done, or I'm going to go get ice cream and take a walk, or I'm going to go to the the library or the DIA, which is like an arts institute. Mm. And so in New York, it's so expensive here. It costs to breathe. Mm. And so not like when I first moved here, it was very difficult because. I didn't get the jobs that I thought I was going to get. So I was just basically thugging it out and living off savings, which was very difficult, uh, still recouping from that. And so I was in a depression all the time here. I was constantly anxious. I didn't have my car. Everything's expensive. So getting your nails done in Detroit versus New York, that's going to be like double the price. Mm. So I started getting back into my old eating disorder habits when I first moved here. It was really bad. And I was crying like every day living here. And so I'm trying to figure out ways while I'm living here and still on a budget to how can I do more self-care things? So I'm still trying to, at the same time, deal with this book stuff and my social media stuff and the interviews and living in a place that's not my own home. You know, like I've never moved anywhere in my entire life. It's my first time moving somewhere alone. Mm -hmm. And so it is a lot to do.
1: Yeah.
0: Like I'm always pretty tired. I'm trying to make it work and try to add more self-care. I probably could add more. Unfortunately, I don't think that's, like, realistic. So I do little things. I'll go out with friends, we'll get sushi, or I'll get, yeah. like, some ice cream. Or When you have so many different things you have to do, yeah. and people email you about deadlines that you should have did, like, two days ago, two weeks right. ago. Like, self-care or deadline. Because, right. like, that should put money. Right. So, I honestly, I was doing good with self-care in Detroit, but now it went backwards.
1: Yeah. You know, so often I think as black women, we, we have this stereotype that's put on us is the strong black woman, right? So you don't feel the pain of when someone's being a troll to you basically or being fatphobic, Islamophobic, misogynistic. What do you do sort of emotionally and mentally to be able to protect yourself?
0: Well, I mean, a lot of people will be like, oh, they're trolls. They don't matter. Just let it roll off. But once right. you keep getting hit over and over and over again, it starts to take a toll. Yeah. Because you're just like, why are you bothering me? I don't bother other people. Like, I don't have time to troll somebody or create a fake account to tell you that you're a fat pig. Like, I just don't have time for that. And these people have time for that. Their goal is to hurt you. Their goal is to knock you off your square so that you can stop doing what you need to do to get to where you need to be. Stop you from living in your truth. Living in your truth makes other people hella uncomfortable, I've noticed. (laughs) So... A lot of people want to dim lights because they don't have the courage or tenacity to do what you're doing. So Mm -hmm. their goal now is to dim your shit. And so learning all of that and kind of putting it into context help a little bit. I don't think anyone's is 100% protected or can prepare themselves for hate. I don't think that's ever going to be a thing. It's like, I'm just a hundred percent protected from hatred. Like that's not how human beings work. Unless you're a robot, you're going to feel something from someone spreading or spewing hate to you or just being plain downright nasty or trolling you. I think that now I understand that there's a bigger picture and that as you're getting closer and closer to like who you're meant to be or whatever you're meant to see or where you're meant to travel or you're meant to meet as you get closer to that it's gonna get hella hard like the universe or the bad part of the universe is gonna try to put all these obstacles and rocks and boulders and family and your baby like jobs and money they're gonna put everything in your path to keep you from getting to that whatever that is right and so I have to tell myself like when things get difficult and shit starts coming down all at once that you're so close to a breakthrough. Mm. So that honestly helps me get through the next step. Cause I've seen what it's like to kind of get over a hump and I can look back and be like, okay, so now that I know that, then it's going to help for the next double hump that I have to get over. <laughs> right? And, <25 laughs> hump. and just understand that honestly, at this point, I don't, th- I think it would be an injustice if I quit. I would be doing an injustice to not only myself, but, I mean, I don't want to be this person, but I feel like millions of people. I agree. So, because there's no other fat black Muslim doing what I've done. No,
1: there isn't. There,
0: there is not, which is very scary and a lot of pressure, but honestly, like I don't think I could quit because just mm-hmm. on the mere fact that I feel like if I quit, I would be letting myself down and a lot of other people. Life is going to be a struggle whether I'm doing something I love or doing something I hate. That's it, right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's so true because you can stay small and protect yourself from the hate, but you're not living your fullest
0: self. Exactly. Yeah. Because like I know artists who talk to me and they look at my career, just like not even on that big scale. I mean, it's like medium. And they'll be like, I am low-key envious because I feel like you've done so much in such a little time. I don't know what's stopping me, but something's stopping me from doing it. And I feel their pain when they say that shit. Because that was me at one point where I was like, I'm not writing anything. Like there's five years like that I did not write, did not create. I was a housewife, a worker, and that was the worst time of my life when I could not create. Mm. And so when I see other people and see the pain of them not being able to live in their truths or not being able to create because of something that's stopping them, whether it's themselves or society or financial, I feel their pain. But I tell them, you're going to struggle whether you do it or not. So pick a struggle
1: ah yes brilliant amazing that's such a perfect place for us to close off thank you so much Leah this conversation has been so good I cannot wait to read your book I know it's going to do amazingly I'm going to be sharing it everywhere what does it mean to you to be a good ancestor
0: hmm I never really thought about it actually Mm -hmm. Um, I'm kind of like I try to live in the moment so I don't try to think too, too far in advance because it scares me. Mm. But it either really scares me or really excites me. It's like either, (laughs) either or. I think what it means to be a good ancestor is leaving impact when you're no longer here. So like from my work, like I'm not going to be here forever unless they create like, you know, sort of an android that they can put my soul or brain (laughs) into. If they don't do that, then I would like my work to live on and still create the same impact. It's yeah. kind of like you know Maya Angelou and like other ancestors we talked about. Like I want my work to still live on and create that same impact because the, the issues that me and you and a lot of other people talk about, these are issues that will be forever. Yeah. We will always have to deal with these issues, and so if I can leave something of impact and of importance for the next generation when I'm no longer here, that's what being a good ancestor is to me.
1: Beautiful. Thank you so much, Leah.
0: Thank you. Yeah.
1: I hope that this episode has helped you gain new insights and find deeper answers to what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to hear what some of your aha moments have been from this conversation. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at Good ancestor Podcast and drop us a comment to let us know what some of your biggest takeaways have been. Thank you for listening and thank you for being a good ancestor.